our current struggles are not the final expression of God's wrath. And we should know this. We should know this. We should be very well aware of what the Bible teaches about the future so that we don't misread our present circumstances and live inappropriately in the present. Awareness then is the focus. How are we living now in light of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? And a key element of being aware is living expectantly. To live expectantly. That is, to live expectantly of the return of Christ. Not not discouragingly about your present struggles, but as the intensity of the struggle increases, live even more expectantly of the Lord's return. That's the idea. I wonder how many of us actually think about the return of Jesus on a regular basis. Or does it simply slip into your thinking every now and then? Or does the return of Jesus actually pervade the way you live because you live with such an expectancy of his return? Are you aware of your current living in light of the return of the Lord Jesus? Awareness is the focus. Live expectantly. These 11 verses that we're looking at in 1 Thessalonians 5 are really a call for Christians to grow in their present awareness in light of what they understand the future to be. So how are we to grow? How do we grow? Well, we began last week looking at these three different ways that Christians should encourage growth in our present awareness in light of God's future plans. That's the the whole idea. Three different ways Christians should encourage growth in our present awareness in light of God's future plans. And we looked at the first one last week. And the first was this, be clear about the future. Be clear about the future. The greater your clarity on the future, the better your awareness in the present. That was the first three verses. What is it that we're to be clear about Well, just to review, we're to be clear about what the day of the Lord is. And just in summary, I'll remind you, the day of the Lord is a season within the second coming that includes a number of things. It includes the judgment of the unbelieving nations, the discipline and restoration of Israel, the vindication of persecuted believers, the rise and destruction of the man of lawlessness, the establishment of Jesus' kingdom on the earth, and the confirmation of believers in heaven the day of Jesus or the day of Christ at the rapture. Essentially, the rapture of the saints begins the day of the Lord. The rapture of the saints into heaven begins the day of the Lord on the earth. We're caught away to be with the Lord in salvation and the Lord brings his wrath to the earth. So be clear about what the day of the Lord is. Secondly, be clear about when the day of the Lord will come. When is the day of the Lord going to come? Well, you remember verse 1, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. When is it going to come? We simply don't know, do we? We don't know. And if anybody tells you they know, they don't know. They don't know. So be clear about when the day of the Lord comes comes. We, we don't know when that's going to be. What, what we can be sure of is that we are not currently in the day of the Lord. This is not the expression of God's wrath. The third thing we need to be clear about is we need to be clear about how the day of the Lord will come. 
You see that in verses 2 and 3, you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. So we know how the day of the Lord is going to come. It will come unexpectedly, suddenly, and inescapably for those to whom it is reserved. For those to whom the day of the Lord is reserved, which is those who dwell on the earth who will receive the wrath of God, it comes unexpectedly, it comes suddenly, and it comes inescapably. Be clear about the future. That leads to the second way that Christians should encourage growth in a present awareness in light of God's future plans. The second is found in verses 4 through 10. And it's this, be prepared in the present. If we're clear about the future, then that means we need to be prepared in the present. It's not rocket science. It's pretty simple. If we know what's happening in the future, how are we to live now? We're to live in a way that's prepared. Prepared for the return of Christ. But the question then is, how do we live in a prepared way for the return of the Lord? It's really very simple and it's very straightforward. You are best prepared in the present for the coming of Christ when you live expectantly of his return. So I just want that word to be in your mind. Live expectantly. You're prepared when you live expectantly of Christ's return. In fact, living expectantly of Christ should encourage an integrity of life. If you live expectant of the Lord, it impacts the integrity of the way you live your life. That really is the theme of verses 4 through 10. And in these verses, you're going to see this back and forth played out. A back and forth between urging expectancy about the future coming of Christ with the outcome being an integrity in the present living of life. You live expectantly and it produces integrity. And when we're clear on what the day of the Lord is, and that we don't know when it's going to happen. And we're clear on the fact that it will occur to those who are on the earth unexpectedly, suddenly, and inescapably. That kind of clarity means that we will live lives that are obviously prepared for the day of the Lord. A day that ushers believers into the presence of Christ, that's chapter 4. And a day that brings down judgment to those on the earth, that's chapter 5. Expectancy of Christ should encourage integrity of life. But how does it do that? Well, let's unpack these verses. How does an expectancy of Christ encourage integrity of life? How does it prepare us? How do we live in a prepared way? First, you need to be confident in your identity. You need to be confident in your identity. This is how you're prepared. If you don't know who you are, you don't live like who you should be. Live confidently in your identity. Notice verse 4. But you, brethren, you are not in darkness. You, as opposed to they who are overcome by the darkness of the day of the Lord, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. Why? Because you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. Do you see his emphasis on your identity? Who are we? Who are you? In light of the coming day of the Lord, who are you? 
Do you know your identity? You are not those people who are saying peace and safety. You are not those who are dwelling in darkness. You are not those to whom the day of the Lord has been reserved. You, brethren, are different. You are not in darkness that the day would overtake you as a thief. This is a direct reference back to verse 2. You remember verse 2, you know full well that the day of the Lord will come how? Just like a thief in the night. But you are not in the darkness. That's verse 4. You're not in the darkness so that the day would overtake you as a thief. The day will not be like that for you. Why? Because you're expecting the day of the Lord. Those who live in darkness, they have no idea. They don't even care that the day of the Lord is coming. It's all peace and safety. You're looking at it and you're saying, we live as if the Lord could come in any moment. We live in expectancy. It's not going to overtake us. When does that come? When does the day of the Lord come? It comes in the night. When the thief comes, in the night. When it is dark and you are not in darkness. You're not a darkness kind of people. That means you're not an unexpectant kind of people who will experience the day of the Lord. Not at all. Now, what does Paul mean when he refers to you are not in darkness? What is he referring to? Well, this is a very significant theme throughout the Bible. And I want to give you just a taste of it. This could be an entire sermon to itself to unpack the theme of darkness and light in the Bible. But let me show you a little bit of what this looks like in regard to the coming of the Lord. For example, if you jump back into the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament, you can just follow along. If you just want to jot these verses down, you can. We're not going to spend a lot of time on it. I just want to to give you a sense of what darkness and light means here. You remember the expression of when the Messiah would come, Isaiah chapter 9. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And you remember this famous phrase, you know it well. The people who walk in darkness will see what? A great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. What is that a reference to? Well, we we don't have to wonder about that because we're told what it refers to in Matthew's gospel. Matthew actually refers to Isaiah chapter 9 of a people who were dwelling in darkness and yet the light comes. Who is that light? Well, we know who it is. It's the Messiah. It's the Messiah. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 12, when Jesus had heard that John had been taken into custody, custody, he withdrew into Galilee. He went into Galilee, which was a very very Gentile-saturated area of Palestine. And he left Nazareth, and he came and settled in Capernaum, which is by the sea, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and then he quotes Isaiah 9, 1 and 2. What is light referenced to here? What is light connected to? Or better yet, who is light connected to? Messiah. Darkness is those who live outside the Messiah, who live in a way 
that does not know the Messiah. When light comes, it's connected to the Messiah. The coming light of God is the coming of the Messiah. Now, Matthew says that's in reference to his first advent. He comes and he preaches the gospel, particularly to the Gentiles, and expands the nations under the gospel call. In fact, the apostle Paul was told in Acts chapter 26 that he would actually be a preacher of light to those who are in darkness. In Acts chapter 26, verse 18, when the Lord told him what his job was, his job was to open the eyes of basically the the Jewish and Gentile people so they may turn from darkness to light, from the dominion of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. That's what Jesus told Paul his ministry was, to bring the ministry of the Messiah to the world. And bringing the ministry of the Messiah brings forgiveness. It helps people see light and escape darkness. You remember the famous text of John 3, 16, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you keep reading in John 3, in verse 19, we're reminded this is judgment, that the light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. When the Messiah comes, he is light. And it distinguishes a kind of people. Those who love the Messiah, they walk in light. Those who do not love the Messiah, they love the deeds of darkness and they then walk in darkness. Light is connected to God. It's a way of life that's connected to living for the Messiah, Christ. Darkness is a way of living outside of God because you are living in a way that's in unforgiveness. 1 John 1.5 reminds us, and this is the message we have heard from him and have announced to you that God is light and in him there is no There's no darkness. When you're connected to God, you're in light. When you're disconnected from God, you're in the darkness. Ephesians 5, 8. You you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is who you are. You are not people of the darkness because you're people of Christ. Colossians 1 verse 13, Colossians 1 13, he delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. So what does all that mean in reference to what Paul says back in verse 4 of 1 Thessalonians 5? But you brethren, you're not in darkness. I told you that's a loaded word, isn't it? It's a biblically loaded word. You are not in the people who are connected to the darkness which represents unforgiveness and being outside of the Messiah. That's not who you are. And darkness in this text is living in a way that has no expectancy of the Messiah because it comes on them like a thief who comes in the darkness. It's both an issue of expectancy and morality. 
When you live expectant of the Messiah, you live for the Messiah. When you are not in the Messiah, you do not expect him to come. You do not live as if he will come. It's both a kind of people who live in darkness, morally, unrighteously, but also how the day of the Lord will come. It comes in darkness, that means unexpectedly. But you're not that kind of people. He assumes that if you're a Christian, you don't live in such a way that you never think about the the Lord's return. You live every day as if the Lord is coming. That's a powerful thought. And he already reminded this church that they were that kind of people. If you remember what he said about them in chapter 1, verse 9. The reports that the Apostle Paul received about the Christians in Thessalonica... They are the kind of people who turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. That's a moral kind of people, isn't it? A moral kind of people who live for God. They turn from idols, they live for God, and to wait for his son from heaven. They live in such a devoted way to God that they live expectantly of the son to come from heaven. Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath which is a powerful statement he's coming to rescue us not from within the wrath of God but to keep us out of the wrath of God because we're not in darkness it's not who we are now what is interesting back in 1 Thessalonians 5 is why Paul suggests that we who believe in Christ are not in darkness so that the day doesn't come on us. That day is not going to come on us like a thief. In fact, if you're in Christ, nobody's going to be surprised because we're all expectant. Why are we expectant? Because of the kind of people we are. What kind of people are we? Verse five, you are all sons of light and you're sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. This is really really helpful to keep in mind you are not an unexpected people because you are people of the daytime not people of the nighttime you are people of light you are not people of darkness your identity you're not a darkness kind of people or a night kind of people you're sons of light and sons of day now what does he mean by sons of what does that mean you're, you're related to the light. You're related to the day. You have the same nature as the light. You have the same nature as the day. You were born of the light. You're born of the day. You're sons of that. You come from it. Used in John 12, 36, while you have the light, believe in the light so that you may become sons of the light. You believe and so you're born of that light. Your identity is not one connected to those who are associated with the immoral and the unrighteous lives of darkness. Those who live like they have no connection or relationship to the Lord Jesus at all. You're a day kind of people. You're a light kind of people and an expectant kind of people, therefore a righteous kind of people. In other words, our nature, friends, our nature, who we are, our identity determines our expectation of the Lord and our expectancy of the Lord drives our living for the Lord. Jot down 2 Corinthians 6.14. It says the same thing. 2 Corinthians 6.14, do not be bound together with unbelievers 
Why? Why do we not join ourselves to unbelievers? And that's not just talking about marriage. It's talking about any kind of enterprise that we would engage ourselves in in the world. We're not joining ourselves to unbelievers. We do not link our identity with the unbelieving world. Why? What partnership does righteousness have with lawlessness? None. What fellowship does light have with darkness? If we turned all the lights out in this room and we put as dark a shade as we could over these windows, and believe me, when it's night in this room, it is dark. I've been here. I know the students have too because they play some crazy games in here when they do some of their events. It's dark. What relationship does darkness have to light? Just, just introduce one stream of light and you spoil all the darkness, right? I mean, there's no relationship. There's no compatibility between light and dark. They do not go together. Your identity in Christ is an identity with light and day, righteousness and anticipation, not immorality and carelessness about the coming of Christ. I want you to notice something else that Paul says in verse five, and notice it very carefully. For you, do you see the next word, all? You are all sons of light. You are all sons of a light kind of people. You are all sons of a day kind of people. Not some of you, all of you. Every one of you who is connected to Christ, who is connected to Christ in belief, you are light people. You are day people. Now here's here's the reality. Why does he have to say this? Because some people are living like they are night kind of people when their nature is their day kind of people we already know some of the Thessalonians here are starting to grieve like unbelievers and even here some are perhaps becoming discouraged with what's going on in their life and they're starting to become discouraged as if they were under the wrath of God I've met with Christians before who think that they're under the judgment of God I've met with some before who are starting to doubt and and wonder just who they are because of the circumstances around them. Maybe God is punishing me. You ever heard that? You ever said that of yourself? Maybe God just does not like me. It's as if he's saying to some people who are starting to drift towards looking more like the unrighteous of the world. Remember, he's already told them, we don't live in immorality like the world does. We live in love. The the world doesn't know love. We live in love. He has to say those things because we have a tendency to drift away towards the kind of people we used to be. So he has to remind them, no, all of you who are in Christ, you're actually day kind of people. You're not gonna go through the wrath of God. This is not the wrath of God. This is not the frown of God on you. You may be acting asleep, but you're daytime people. You may be drifting into unexpected kinds of living. Have you ever done that? Have you ever drifted into an unexpected kind of living? Could you look back on this week and say, you know what? I lived an unexpected week. I lived as if I never really thought about the Lord returning. Never crossed my mind. I was so busy this week doing all the things I was doing. Or I was so caught up in all the despair that was coming and flooding into my life or I was just so overwhelmed with all the duties that I had to do, I never even thought about how the Lord may come at any moment. And how did that work out in your day-to-day living? 
I'll bet you saw something there. You saw the creep of despair. You saw the creep of discouragement. You saw the creeping in of anxiety because you weren't living in anticipation of the Lord's return. But all of you are sons of the day. All of you are sons of the light. It's a reminder. We need to remind ourselves of who we are in the Lord. How often do you need to be reminded of who you are? I need it all the time. All the time. I need, I need people to remind me of who I am. I need gatherings like this to remind me of who I am. I need to sing songs that remind me of who I am. I need to read the word daily that reminds me who I am in the Lord because it impacts how I live in light of the coming of the Lord. You need to keep reminding of yourself of who you are, what your position is in Christ because it impacts then how you then live for him, which is where he goes next. It's where he goes next. He's reminding us of who we are, but there's a second way we can be prepared, not just reminding ourselves of our identity, but on the heels of that, flowing out of that, is a second way we're prepared in the present living by expectantly living for the Lord. Secondly, be consistent with your activity. Be consistent with your activity. So I need to remind myself of who I am, but I also need to be consistent, not just confident of who I am, but consistent in my activity because of who I am. Verses six through eight, look at verse six. So then, here's the result. Because of who you are, so then. Let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober, Because those who sleep do their sleeping at night and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. Be consistent with your activity. Be consistent with the way you live your life. Here's the expected result of remembering who you are. So then, let us not sleep. I wonder if you noticed the little subtle change. You remember verse four, the pronoun is, but you. He changed it in verse six. So then let us, he places himself with them. You may be drifting, but altogether we together must not allow ourselves to drift into sleep. We must not sleep. He sees himself as one of them. He is with them. In light of who we are, then none of us should be asleep. Now, what does he mean by sleep here? Because we've already encountered this idea back in chapter 4, haven't we? Those who sleep in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, were those who have died. But that's not what he's referring to here. We know that because he changed the word. There's one Greek word in chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, to use for sleep, but he changes the word completely to a different word. He doesn't want you to associate those he's referring to here with the believers in chapter four who have died and who will be raised up together with the Lord. This is an altogether different kind of person. The sleeping kind of people are not the people who are gonna be raised up to heaven. The sleeping kind of people are those for whom the day of the Lord and the wrath of God is reserved. This is a whole different word. And I don't want you to sleep as others do, like the rest, literally. 
the others, the others who are asleep who are going to be overtaken by the day of the Lord as a thief, they're not living expectantly, they're asleep. They're not aware. They're not alert. But let us not sleep. What's the opposite of sleeping? You say, well, obviously it's be awake. Yeah, that's the word he uses. This is not hard, is it? Bible study is not hard. It's really pretty easy. Don't sleep. What's the opposite? Be awake. That's what he says in verse 6. Don't sleep as others, but let us be alert. That's the word for be awake. Be awake. Why? You're day people. You don't sleep during the day. I know some of you have those kinds of jobs. You work all night long. But in, in the first century world, they didn't have third shift. All right? They didn't have that. That's not, that wasn't an expectation. Most people sleep at night and they're awake in the daytime. That's when you're productive. That's when you can live a productive life is in the daytime when you can see things and you can be aware and you can be alert. Don't be like those who sleep who say peace and safety when it's doom and gloom that's coming. They say it's peace and safety when there's judgment coming on the world. You're not that kind of people. You're day people so you see everything. You know what's coming. You're expectant of what can come. You're alert and sober. Sober. You're not drunk. Why? Why would he give this analogy? You're expectant. That's awake. You're sober. You're godly. That's not drunk. He associates ungodliness with drunkenness and drunkenness particular because that's a kind of ungodliness that dulls the senses. It does not keep you alert and awake. You might be awake, but you're dulled in your awareness of what's going on. So you live in a different way. It's these dual ideas, expectant and godly, moral and aware. The word alert is the word gregoreo in Greek. It's a very important word, especially in light of eschatological activities that is those activities connected to the end and the return of Christ for example Jesus uses this word awake be awake when he's describing the end in Matthew chapter 24 verse 42 therefore be on the alert be awake for you do not know which day your Lord is coming or verse 43 of Matthew 24, be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would, have not, would not have allowed his house to be broken into. Matthew 25, 13, be on the alert then. You do not know the day or the hour. Used again in the book of Revelation, similarly in regard to the coming of the Lord, Revelation 3, 3, therefore you, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Revelation 16, 15, behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. It's a word that means to stay awake in light of the coming of the Lord. But if you were also to go through the New Testament and find other places where this word is used, it's really fascinating. This word, be awake, is oftentimes connected with the idea of prayer. I find this to be really a fascinating connection between how to stay awake and alert about the Lord's return. How do you do that? Well, prayer is often connected to this idea of staying awake. 
You remember when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane and he found his disciples sleeping while he invited them to come and watch with him? You remember that phrase? Come watch with me. The word watch is the word watch in a awake kind of way. Be awake with me. And he meant by that prayer. And we know that because he told them in Matthew 26, 38, remain here and keep watch with me. Be alert with me. And what did he do to stay alert in that moment of intense temptation? Well, he prayed. The most intense time of prayer we have ever witnessed in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ happened in that place. He's praying, and then he goes and finds his disciples, what? Asleep. And he says to them, he found them sleeping, Matthew 26, 40. And he said to Peter, as if Peter's the leader, you should have been keeping these guys awake, Peter. He says to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me? What does he mean? That's the same word, Gregoreo. You couldn't be awake with me? And what does be awake here mean? Pray with me. You couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? He tells him in verse 41, keep watching and praying. Stay alert by praying that you may not enter into temptation. It's the way the Apostle Paul described this word, stay awake, in Colossians 4.2. Devote yourselves to prayer. Listen to this. Devote yourselves to prayer. What keeps you devoted to prayer? Keeping awake, keeping alert in prayer with an attitude of thanksgiving. What? What keeps you alert? Prayer does. How in the world does prayer keep you alert? And by the way, I think back in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says stay awake and alert, prayer is not far from his mind because he's going to tell us in verse 17 of this chapter, how are we to pray? How are we to pray, verse 17, without ceasing? You always find yourself in a state of prayer because what does that do? It keeps you alert and watchful. How would it do that? Well, just again, would you go back to the way Jesus taught us to pray? Our Father, who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. What does he say to pray next? Your kingdom come. What do you think that means? It's as if at the very beginning of the way we pray, we're to be watching for the Lord to come. We are praying for the kingdom. You say, well, that means for his kingdom to, to spread into the lives through salvation, through others. Yes, but ultimately it means bring your kingdom to the earth. It's the way we pray. It keeps us alert and awake of the coming of the Lord. Can I just remind us? If you are a prayerless person, you are likely a person not very aware. You're not aware of what's going on in the present because you're not expecting the Lord. The most prayerful people are the people who are most expectant of the Lord because they're constantly thinking and praying about his return. They see everything in light of that. I'm telling you, the 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 less you pray or the more inconsistent you are in prayer, likely the less expectant you are of the Lord. And that's going to translate into how you live. It's all connected. Be alert. But not just alert. He also says be sober. Be sober. What does that mean? Well, don't be drunk. Don't be 
living in a stupor. Be sober. That means live a life of complete control. You're in control because what happens to you when you're drunk? You're out of control. You don't have control of who you are and what you do. Your senses are dulled. Your faculties are blurred. Alertness refers to an expectant approach to life, but sobriety refers to a controlled approach to life. And both of these are approaches to life that are aware of your present living. Soberness is often connected to alertness, by the way. These words for sobriety and for alertness or watchfulness or being awake is often connected together and connected to the return of the Lord. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, prepare your minds for action, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Or 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things is near, therefore be of sound judgment and sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. (laughs) There he links prayer again to sobriety. 1 Peter 5, 8, be of sober spirit, be on the alert. There's our two words together. Why? Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. You better be alert, you better be awake, and you better be sober-minded and very aware and controlled of what's going on because the devil, it's as if he's walking around, scaring the life out of you with his roar. And if you're not sober, you're going to think, that you have fallen into his grasp. It's how we live. You live a sober life, you live a life of control, which, by the way, is the fruit of the Spirit, isn't it? To live a life of control is to live under the control of the Spirit. Paul said this to Timothy, and one of the last things he would ever tell Timothy in 2 Timothy 4 or 5, you be sober in all things. Now, why are we to be sober? Verse 7 of 1 Thessalonians 5. Why are we sober? Because, verse 7 is the explanation. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. Those who sleep, sleepers connected to the night. What comes at the night? The thief. You're not expecting of the day of the Lord. That's not you. Those who get drunk, when do they get drunk? At night, most of the time. You say, oh, I know people who get drunk all day. Well, sure, but most of the time, drunkenness is connected to the night. Why are the nightclubs named the nightclubs? And it always refers to a kind of living. Sleepers are not aware because they're asleep. They don't have anything going on. Drunkards are drunk and they're under the stupor of the alcohol. And so they're not alert and aware and controlled. That's not you. That's a kind of people for whom the day of the Lord comes. You are not of those people. You're not those people. You're expectant and you're godly. Now, now how, do we, how do we do this? How do we stay awake and how do we stay sober? Verse 8. But, and he reminds you of your identity, since we are of the day, let us 
be sober. Because we're not night kinds of people, we're not unrighteous people, and because we're day kinds of people, we're the kinds of people who will not be overtaken by the day of the Lord as a thief. No, we're aware, we're expectant, and we have chosen to be sober. We have to discipline ourselves to be sober-minded. We're alert, aware, in full control. How do we do that? We're of the day. Let us be sober, and here's how you, you live soberly having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. That's how you live alert and sober. You put on, you have put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In fact, it's said in such a way, the way you live this way is that you have already put these things on. And so you live in them because you already have them. And what do you have? Now, this, this should really sound familiar on a number of fronts, right? This language should sound so familiar. First, it sounds familiar because we know how this letter is arranged. It's arranged around these three Christian graces, faith, love, and hope. And here he calls this armor that you put on the breastplate of faith and love. And the helmet is the hope of salvation. He's been unpacking that through this whole letter. It's called the gospel, these are the three Christian graces that comprise a life lived in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have confidence in Christ, you have affectionate devotion toward one another, and you have an expectation that he will come. That's faith, love, and hope. And they are like armor to you. That breastplate of faith and love protects all the vital organs of your soul. That helmet protects your mind with the hope of salvation so you're steady and secure. Now, you've heard this kind of language before, haven't you? This sounds like Paul in Ephesians chapter 6, doesn't it? Put on the whole armor of God so that you can stand fast, which is a, a great, great explication of what it means to live in the gospel. It's a word picture, really, of the gospel itself. Paul, in the book of Ephesians, has been unpacking what the gospel means and what it looks like and how to live in the gospel all, through all the chapters, chapters one through six, all about how to live in the gospel. What do you have in the gospel? First three chapters. Last three chapters, how do you live in that? So now he wraps it all up at the end of chapter six and says, live like you're putting on all the armor. You have it all, so live in it. Chapter 6 of Ephesians, verse 14, you gird your loins with truth, the breastplate of righteousness. In verse 15, you shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Verse 16, that you have the shield of faith. Verse 17, the sword of the spirit. And even verse 18 of Ephesians 6, 6 says you're praying at all times in the spirit to keep yourself alert. He actually uses that language again. You live in the gospel. But there's something more here that I want you to see. And it's a bit subtle, perhaps. This is actually a reference to the Old Testament. This whole idea of the armor and the gospel is a reference to the Old Testament. It's actually an allusion to Isaiah chapter 59. You can go ahead and turn to Isaiah 59 just for a moment. It's a, an allusion to Isaiah 59 verse 17. In this portion of Isaiah's book, to the last portion of his book, verses 58 to 66 are the last section of the book where the whole creation is going to be finally renewed. And that renewal will happen in the final coming of God to the earth in righteousness. 
But he begins in, in Isaiah 59 in the first 14 verses saying, I can't find any righteousness on the earth. I can't see any righteousness, can't find any righteousness. And so what is God going to do because he can't find righteousness on the earth? You see, look at verse 14, justice is turned back. Righteousness stands far away. The truth is stumbled in the street. Uprightness cannot enter. Yes, truth is lacking. And he who turns aside from evil makes himself pray. Now the Lord saw, and it was displeasing in his sight that there was no justice. And he saw that there was no man and was astonished that there was no one to intercede. Then, watch this. If there's no one who's righteous, and no one to intercede, what will God do? Then his own arm brought salvation to him. This is wild. God's own arm brought salvation to God? Yes. His righteousness, God's righteousness upheld him. Upheld who? God. What is this a reference to? This is likely God saying, there isn't anyone righteous, so I'm going to send myself, which is a reference to the first advent of Christ. He'll bring himself. That's where righteousness will be. And notice verse 17, he, this is a reference to God. He will put on righteousness like a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. And he put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself with zeal as a mantle. Who's wearing the armor? God is. What does it mean to live in the armor? It's, it's what Paul says in Ephesians. You live in the armor means you live in Christ. You live in the Messiah. That's what it means. When Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 is saying you live soberly by living in faith, love, and hope. That's just another way to say you live in Christ. You live in the Messiah. You live in the gospel. That's what faith, love, and hope are. They're the gospel. You're living in the person of Christ. You live in the righteousness of God. Now watch verse 18 of Isaiah 59. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, recompense to his enemies, to the coastlands he will make recompense. What does that sound like? That doesn't sound like the first advent of Christ, does it? It sounds like the second. When he comes back, this sounds like the day of the Lord. So they will fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun and he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives, a redeemer will come to Zion and to those who turn from transgression in Jacob, declares the Lord. That's a description of the day of the Lord. In fact, Isaiah right here conflates the first and second comings of Christ here together. God will come in his own righteousness and establish his own righteousness and then he will return to bring that righteousness to the earth and establish it across the world. So what does Paul have in mind back in 1 Thessalonians 5 when he says, put on this armor in light of the coming day of the Lord. You are not going to go through the wrath of God. Actually, you're going to come with him when he brings his righteousness back to the earth, which is precisely what he's already said. Chapter 3, verse 13. We will be established in holiness in front of God the Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his holy ones saints 
us who are in Christ, in his righteousness. We come with him to bring his righteousness to the earth. It's what Revelation 19 depicts when the rider on the horse comes and he comes back to the earth and establishes his kingdom on the earth. He brings righteousness with all his saints. What is Paul saying back in 1 Thessalonians 5? You're sober when you are dressed in the gospel and you are ready to be caught up to be with the Lord in the air when he establishes then all the events of his wrath coming on the earth and then you will come back with him to bring that judgment to the earth. You're that kind of people. So be sober. Live like that now. That's a pretty profound statement. The day of the Lord begins with the day of Christ bringing believers up, confirming them, establishing and beginning the wrath of God on the earth, and that wrath culminates with our return with our Lord. So you need to be consistent in all of your activity because you're expecting the coming of the Lord. Be confident in your identity, consistent with your activity. Third, and quickly, just be assured of your eternity. Be assured of your eternity. This is how you're prepared. This is how you're prepared. Notice verse 9. Why do we put on this armor and live in a sober way? Because why do we put on the armor that is Christ in anticipation of his return? Because God has not destined us for wrath. He is not, that's a word, it's a significant word, but he's not appointed us for wrath. He appoints us Not for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's a loaded phrase. How do we obtain salvation? I thought God just grants it to us. Well, he grants it to us so that we obtain it. We reach out in faith. We live in faith. We conduct ourselves in hope. And that obtains for us salvation, final salvation. Not because of our actions, but because God has destined us for that. He has destined us not for wrath. We're not going through wrath. God never pours his wrath out on his people, ever. We are destined for salvation. And verse 10 is so profound. We're destined for salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ is the one who died for us. Literally, he died on our behalf. He died on our behalf. Death is not the end. Jesus died, and that is the beginning of life for us. He died for, on behalf of us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, you say, well, what does he mean by that, awake or asleep? Well, I take it this way. Either you're living in an alert way, or whether you are one of those who finds yourself being lulled into sleep, and you need to be awakened. I don't think this means living or dead. He, again, here doesn't use the same word for asleep that he uses in chapter four for sleep. He's using a different word, the word that he means for those who are drifting into sleep like the world. Whether you're one who is starting to drift or you're one who is awake, he died for you. He died for you so that you would live together with him, which is a phrase that goes back to chapter four when he catches up the believing dead and those believing who are living into the air to be with him, we will be with him forever. He died for you, whether you find yourself drifting or whether you're watchful so that you would be with him forever and live. So live a sober life. 
live a sober life. Be prepared. Now I need to finish this up with one one final way in which we need to, to live, in which we grow in our awareness. That last one is found in verse 11. Be engaged always. Be engaged always. Be clear about the future. Be prepared in the present. Be engaged always. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. What does that mean? Encourage those who are grieving but shouldn't be. What do you encourage them with? The Lord is coming. You'll be with him. Encourage those and edify those. Build up those who are struggling and beginning to drift and they're discouraged. Build them up. Strengthen them. That's what the word edify means. Build them up. Be engaged in helping each other. And these are present tense imperatives. They're commands to do this as the habit of your life. You know what I find with people who are getting discouraged? They tend to drift away, not engage. The people who are drifting into hopelessness, they tend to isolate themselves. They start believing other things that, other than the truth and they start isolating themselves. Don't allow yourself to, to be lulled into some kind of spiritual sleep and seduced by what you're hearing in the world. Christians never isolate themselves from the world. They don't isolate. They engage each other because we live in the world. I'm not saying we, have to, we don't let the world dictate our behavior, but we don't isolate ourselves. We don't, we don't hide ourselves away. We don't just gather together in little communes together and make sure nobody touches us with their sinful selves. We don't do that. That's not what Christians do. We know that we're in the world. We know that Jesus prayed that we wouldn't be overcome by the world. And that he's going to keep his own. So we encourage each other. And we build each other up. Isn't that what we heard the writer of Hebrews say to us? Listen again. Hebrews 10. Verse 23 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Because he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together. What does that mean? If you want to stay sober-minded, you meet together. You want to stay alert in prayer. You want to stay awake. You make sure you're gathering with the saints because that's where we stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You encourage one another. And all the more as you see, what? The day drawing near. What does that mean? You even come to church with an expectation that what we're doing here helps us be more alert of the coming of the Lord Jesus. So I want to circle back to when we started talking about the second coming of Christ and address all the people in the room who say, I really don't care about that issue. I I really don't, don't care about all that stuff. That, that should trouble you. Now, I get it. I, what you may be saying is, I, I don't care about the debate over the minutiae. I don't want to be divisive. And I hope that's your heart. I hope that's my heart. I hope that's all of our heart. We're not, we're not here to discourage each other with the minutiae. 
But don't do anything that dulls your heart to the expectancy of the Lord's return. In fact, do everything you can to stoke the fires of expectancy because it causes you to live in integrity to be found in the Lord when he comes. And by the way, the coming of the Lord is not a bat to bludgeon people into righteousness. Expectancy is living in eager anticipation that the Lord you love and long for is coming for you. That's expectancy. It should encourage your heart. He's coming. In fact, the more you struggle, the more you should hope for his coming. The more you should cry out like John does at the end of Revelation, come Lord Jesus. Come quickly. Come. And if you are dulled and you live uncaringly about the coming of the Lord, I would say you probably do not live a sober life, a prayerful life, an eager life that longs for the Lord to come. Don't live like that. Now, what does it look like in practicality to live alert and sober? Actually, verses 12 through 22 is going to describe that to us. We'll start into that next time. But live confidently in the Lord because of who you are, aware of your circumstances, focused on the coming of Jesus. Live aware, grow in your awareness.